0: All right. Well, good evening, everybody. Whoa, that's powerful. I feel like I got filled with the Spirit. Good to see you guys. Welcome to Calvary tonight. Uh, I do have to correct my sweet uh, secretary. We will not be finishing Genesis tonight. Uh, she didn't know that. I, I intended to, but you know, you're pastor. I get going on this stuff. So next week, next week, we'll finish. Uh, Tonight, can I have you turn, though, to chapter 49, Genesis 49, and let's pick it up in verse 1. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Well, these sons were born to Jacob but now they will be prophesied over by Israel. The phrase in the last days is used 14 times in the Old Testament, and each time it deals with prophecy, prophecy. Now, Genesis 49 is one of the most incredible, prophetically rich chapters in the Bible. That's why, as I was studying it today, I thought, you know, we really need to just, you know, take this one more week. But in this chapter, as we, kind of have seen Jacob is on his deathbed and he calls his 12 sons around him he musters up the energy to pull himself up where he is now sitting up in bed leaning on his staff and with his sons gathered around them he goes one by one around the bed prophesying over each one he starts with his oldest son Reuben verse 3 He said, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might in the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellence of power. Now, in verse 3, Jacob, speaking to Reuben, is referring to the position of the firstborn. The firstborn son in Jewish culture was a big deal. It was a big deal. It was a position of great honor, dignity, and power, primarily because when the father passed, uh, the firstborn became the leader of the family and the spiritual leader of the family as well. Also, uh, that position carried so much honor that the firstborn got a double portion of his father's inheritance unlike any, none of the others did, okay? Uh, verse 4, even though Reuben was, of course, the firstborn and had a great position of honor in the family, uh, we read in verse 4 that Jacob goes on, he says, Unstable is water you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Unfortunately, even though Reuben was the firstborn, he never really lived up to that honor. Uh, In fact, he went on to be a weak man, a weak leader, and to make matters worse, he was a man that couldn't control his lustful desires. If you remember, we studied chapter 35. We saw how that Reuben at one point slept with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And even though Jacob didn't say much about it at the time, he never forgot what his oldest son did. And because of it, Reuben forfeited his birthright. He was no longer worthy to be the one who would take over in his father's absence, or his father's death, of course. He was not a strong enough man, a spiritually mature enough person, or a person of enough self-control where Uh, The honor of being the uh, family leader, he just was not going to fulfill that properly. And now, because he slept with his father's concubine, he forfeits his birthright. And uh, his descendants never really do excel. As we study the history of Israel, we see that no judge in the book of Judges comes from Reuben. Uh, Neither does any prophet or king come from the tribe of Reuben. So we see that Jacob's prophecy concerning Reuben and his descendants did indeed come true. They did not excel. Next he kind of lumps Simeon and Levi together. Verse 5 Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Curse it be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now You see, I will divide them. The Holy Spirit is speaking directly through Jacob. That's what God is saying he was gonna do. Jacob is prophesying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, What is he referring to? Well, he's referring to the episode that took place in chapter 34. How that when Jacob and his family were down in the area of Shechem. Now this was a city that was named after the oldest son, uh, I believe of a man named Hamor. And uh, he builds this city, names it after his son. Well, while they're down there, uh, Shechem kind of woos Dinah, who had a rebellious streak. And she goes with him, sneaks out of the house, the tent, and rendezvous with Shechem, and he rapes her. And he then kept her captive in his house. And so when word gets back to uh, Jacob's sons, Levi and uh, Simeon uh, concoct this plan where they tell them, look, the men of Shechem, look, we want to kind of combine with you guys. We want to intermarry. All our wealth we'll share. And the guys of the city of Shechem thought that was a great idea because Jacob and his family had a lot of wealth. They said, but one condition. You know, we're circumcised men. We can't intermarry with uncircumcised men. So you guys go ahead and have yourselves circumcised, and then we'll go ahead and, you know, start plans to intermarry, Right? Well, it was just a ruse. I mean, on the third day after the guys were circumcised, they were in such pain. That's when Simeon and Levi took swords and went into the city and killed all the men, killed a lot of the animals, plundered the whole city. I mean, it's one thing for them to be upset with a guy who rapes their sister. I understand that. They didn't just kill him, they killed everybody. And that's what Jacob is talking about here. He said, You guys are cruel. I don't want to be in your company. I wouldn't want to have anything to do with you too. I mean, you, you know, in your cruelty you did this, in your fierce anger. Uh, whereas Reuben had manifested weakness and lust, Simeon and Levi had manifested anger and cruelty. They also forfeited then the birthright. It passed down. In fact, Worsby said, and I quote, since it was dangerous to be in their assembly or in their company, God arranged that the two tribes would not be able to assemble or do anything Together, the tribe of Simeon was eventually absorbed into the tribe of Judah. You can read about that in Joshua 1, verses 9, 1 and 9. Excuse me, Joshua 19, verses 1 and 9. And Wordsby goes on to say, And the tribe of Levi was given 48 towns to live in, because they were the, uh, the tribe where the uh, priests came from. And uh, so they didn't inherit any land, but each of the tribes set aside cities that they lived in. So they were scattered throughout the land, living in these various cities and uh, indeed he says the brothers were divided in Jacob and scattered in Israel well that brings us to Judah in verse 8 he said Judah you are he whom your brothers shall praise now the name Judah means praise and listen the two sons that Jacob prophesies over the longest were Judah and Joseph they get 10 verses out of 25 so those are the two that uh, he focuses on primarily verse 8 Judah, you are, are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Now, of course, the tribe of Judah went on to be the royal tribe of the Davidic line. And no doubt because royalty is often associated with a lion, the king of the beast. Jacob goes on to call Judah a lion. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him. Of course, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, our Messiah, the king of kings. Uh, He is referred to in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And uh, of course, it's all looking forward to Jesus. Listen, the next part of Jacob's prophecy over Judah, though, is one of the most powerful in all of Scripture. Verse 10, Jacob goes on. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. The word Shiloh is a messianic term, and it means until he comes to whom it belongs. And it refers ultimately to Jesus' right to reign uh, over the whole earth during the millennial kingdom, uh, a kingdom that belongs to him, okay, Shiloh, until he comes to whom it belongs. So it's referring to Jesus and how he's going to come back to set up his kingdom, a kingdom that uh, he has earned the right to rule over because when he came the first time, when he went to the cross, he bought back the earth from the usurper, Satan, in the Garden of Eden, Uh, Adam and Eve, to whom God gave the earth, it was yours, he said, to watch over, tend it, Uh, they gave it to Satan as he deceived them. And uh, when they ate the forbidden fruit, a transaction took place. Uh, The earth became uh, the property of Satan. Man became uh, slaves of Satan. Man sold himself into slavery. And the only way he could be redeemed was by a kinsman redeemer who could pay the price. And the price, of course, was the blood of a sinless man and that would require god to become a man and that's exactly what happened And when jesus died on that cross when he said it is finished a lot of things were going on in that statement yes our salvation was finished in the sense we don't need to do anything to help jesus it's all done the work of salvation but also the the idea of buying back the world from the hands of satan now listen he bought and paid for it on calvary's cross he hasn't, take possession, hasn't taken possession of it yet. He's coming back to do that. When he comes back, it is his to reign over. And so he established the right to uh, reign over the whole earth. Now, the scepter, okay, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. The scepter is the symbol of a king. Uh, it's also the symbol of a sovereign nation and its right to impose capital punishment on those whose crimes warranted as any sovereign nation has the right to do. Now, listen. According to the historian Josephus, the right of capital punishment was taken away from the Jewish nation by the Romans in 6 AD. When that happened, the rabbis walked through the streets of Jerusalem. They had torn their clothes, ashes on their heads, weeping and wailing because in their mind the word of God had been broken. The scepter had departed from Judah, and yet Shiloh had not come. Little did they understand that 70 miles to the north in the town of Nazareth, there was a young boy living with his mom and stepdad, working in his stepfather's carpentry shop. We know him as, of course, Jesus Christ. You see, the word of God had not failed. Shiloh had come before the scepter had departed from Judah. Well, verse 11 Jacob goes on, binding his donkey, speaking of Messiah still, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Now, many see in verse 11 a reference to both the first and second coming of Jesus. First of all, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, some see in this a reference to the donkey and its colt that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that, you know, Palm Sunday, his triumphal entry, right? He bound himself to the vine. Well, in the Old Testament, Israel was likened to a vine uh, in numerous places. The idea is, and I'm not sure this is a correct interpretation, but I lean towards it, and that is that Jesus came on Palm Sunday, his triumphal entry, riding into the city of Jerusalem, the only time in his ministry, that he allowed himself to be worshipped as Messiah as he officially presented himself to the nation as their king. And what did they do? They rejected him. He bound himself to them, to the vine, Israel, but they rejected him. So he said, you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A reference to his second coming. But we do read in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, The prophecy, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, for your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He came lowly, riding on a donkey. Now, of course, as you have no doubt heard me say many times, if a king came riding up to a city on a donkey, you could breathe a sigh of relief. When they rode a donkey up to the gates of the city, they were coming in peace proposing terms of peace. Jesus came the first time uh, as a Lamb of God, meek and mild Lamb of God, proposing peace to the world. Uh, If they would have received him, he would have established his kingdom. Uh, He did not. Uh, When he comes the second time, he's going to be riding what? A white horse. Now, in that culture, if a king came riding up to your city, riding a white charger, that was not good. He came as a conquering king and so when jesus comes back the second time he will not be jesus meek and mild uh, you know look upon this little child he'll be the lion of the tribe of judah and he is going to exact vengeance upon his enemies in fact he goes on to say that of messiah that he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes and many see in that prophecy a reference to his second coming where before he establishes his kingdom, he first treads on his enemies in judgment, literally, literally washing his garments in their blood. Turn to Isaiah 63. And this is a reference to Jesus who has come back to the earth, and the first thing he does is brings judgment upon all those who have opposed him, his enemies who don't want him reigning over them, and so on. This is the first order of business before he establishes the kingdom. Get rid of all those who don't want to be a part of the kingdom, who don't want Jesus to reign over their lives. And so we read in verse 1, Who is this who comes from Edom, with dyed garments from Basra? Uh, This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So somebody's asking, Who is this who's coming? And Jesus answered, It is I. Okay, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And then they ask him, Why is your apparel red, and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And Jesus said, I have trodden the winepress alone. Well, of course, nobody can bring judgment upon the unjust except the Lord himself. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Finally, the Lord coming back to save. Remember what he said in Matthew 24, talking about the tribulation period? And he who remains to the end shall be saved. What does he mean by that? He who escapes the wrath of the Antichrist. Believers who escape the Antichrist and who are alive when Jesus returns, he will save them. Not spiritually, they're already saved physically for the the attacks of the antichrist and he says it here for the day of my vengeance has come and i'm gonna i'm wiping out my enemies and i'm saving or redeeming those who have been waiting for me well back in genesis 49 verse 12 we read still prophesying over judah about messiah his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk so what does that mean i don't know it's got Dark eyes and white teeth, I don't know. You tell me. I'm sure that he's beautiful to behold, you know, in his glory. But, um, okay, I'll just let you wrestle with that, all right? Uh, now, up until this point, Jacob has been following the birth order. Uh, that is until he prophesies over the, his, over the next two sons, Zebulun and Issachar. Now, Zebulun and Issachar were not the fifth and sixth sons of Jacob. You remember, as we've already studied this, that Jacob's first four sons were born to him through Leah. They were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. After Judah, Jacob had two sons by Rachel's handmaid, Bilhah. They were Dan and Naphtali. Then, of course, Leah gets jealous because she's not conceiving anymore. So she gives Jacob her handmaid, Zilpah, and Zilpah bears him two sons, Gad and Asher. After that, God opens Leah's womb once again, and she bears, Jacob, two more sons, uh, Issachar, his ninth son, and Zebulun, his tenth son. Why is the birth order out of place? I don't know. I don't know. It could be the boys are standing around him, uh, grouped according to their moms. I don't know. Um, I haven't tried this. Maybe you can do it and tell me. Take the names of each of the twelve tribes as they appear in order here and see if take their names the way, what their names mean, each of them, and see if it doesn't create a sentence that gives us insight into what God might be doing here. We saw that in Genesis 5, the genealogy of Adam, and how we saw the gospel right there in the names of Adam's genealogy. Of course, Adam means man. God was saying, look, this is the genealogy of man. Uh, It's all about Messiah's coming. Incredible chapter. Anyways, so he goes on to prophesy over Zebulun, verse 13. He says, "Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea, he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon." Uh, this has confused many commentators, because it seems Jacob is saying that Zebulun, the tribe of Zebulun, is going to dwell on the seacoast. However, that wasn't the case. Asher was the one who inherited land on the northwest sea coast of Israel. If you look at a Bible map uh, later on and a map that has the 12 tribes on it, you will notice that Asher uh, occupied the land right on the coast and then inland right next to them was Zebulun. They were kind of landlocked, really. And uh, so you say, well, what is going on here? And some commentators you know, say, well, maybe at one time they were on the coast and then they moved. And Well, no, because Joshua divided the land. And once they got a portion of the land, they didn't trade That was their land. They stayed right where God had placed them. So what's going on? How can we explain this? Well, some commentators say the answer lies in the translation of the Hebrew word. That it doesn't technically mean that he will live by or on. Actually, they say the real uh, translation of this Hebrew word means that uh, Zebulun would actually would uh, live uh, to or toward the seashore. And therefore they say Jacob's prophecy should read this way. Zebulun shall dwell toward the seashore. Yes, he shall be toward the shore where ships come. Now listen, while not directly on the Mediterranean coast, the tribe of Zebulun was assigned, as I said, a, a piece of land close enough to the Mediterranean where any merchandise, any uh, merchant ships that, uh, that came uh, to the port where Asher was, uh, all the merchandise would be unloaded, and they would, most of it would have to go through Zebulun. So even though they were not technically on the seacoast, they were close enough where uh, commerce from the sea passed through them, and that allowed them to become a fairly wealthy uh, tribe. Fairly wealthy tribe. The real claim to fame in our minds as believers is that Jesus began his public ministry Uh, in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. In fact, turn to Matthew 4, and we read in verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, Jesus conducted most of his public ministry in the Galilee uh, because many of the Jews had rejected him and the Galilee was Gentile country, primarily. There were Jews up there, but it was primarily Gentile country, and uh, they seemed to be more open to him than his own people, and uh, so he uh, really focused most of his ministry uh, up there, although he did work his way down then uh, to Judah, to Jerusalem uh, the last six months of his uh, life, because, of course, he would be crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. So. He focused the last part of his ministry there in Jerusalem. But uh, again, most of it was conducted up north. But listen, we talk about Zebulun and, and you know the sea and all, but you probably know this, but the Jewish people were not a seafaring people. They never had their own navy like the Phoenicians, okay? In fact, most Jews were afraid of the open sea. But uh, even though they weren't a seafaring people, the Jewish people, the tribe of Zebulun did do business with the Phoenicians to the west, And then, of course, they were a seafaring people. And then the the merchandise that they brought from the sea, uh, Zebulun took and sold to those uh, to the east. So, again, Zebulun became a very wealthy tribe. But here's the thing. You got to be careful of wealth. All right. Jacob goes on in his prophecy to, it seems, include a warning. Yes, you're going to be a very prosperous tribe. But there's also a warning he gives. And his border shall adjoin Sidon. Sidon was a very wicked city, a very immoral, wicked, occultic city, and um, would become a snare eventually, not only to the tribe of Zebulun in particular, but also to the nation of Israel in general. If you remember, Jezebel, the wicked, idolatrous wife of King Ahab, was a princess of the country of Sidon. And when she became Ahab's wife, he was the king of Israel. This is after the kingdom had divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. And uh, the northern kingdom had no good kings. Judah had uh, eight who were good kings and brought some good periods of revival or at very least um, reformation. Israel had no good kings. They went from bad to worse. Ahab was one of the worst of the lot, in fact, as i have said before ahab and jezebel were the dynamic dynamic demonic duo of the old testament they were dynamic if you like demonic but um when she married him she brought her idols from sidon down to israel and they were the the ruin of not only ahab's family but uh, it infected the whole northern kingdom and uh wind up god wound up Killing many in judgment, thousands and thousands. So it was a, a real scourge to the northern kingdom. Well, Issachar, verse fourteen, Jacob goes on. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest. He saw that rest was good, and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden, and became a band of slaves. A little cryptic. Okay, uh, let's see if we can unravel it a little bit. Um, he says Issachar is a strong donkey. Uh, the people of Issachar, the men of Issachar were a strong people, like a donkey. Donkey's a beast of burden. Okay. So the, the men of Issachar were a very strong people, but they would ultimately become a lazy people. Uh, first of all, let me just say this. This tribe produced more fighting men than most of the tribes in Israel. I think only two, uh, produced more warriors than Issachar. And then uh, I think Dan was the one that had maybe a hundred more. So this this tribe produced a lot of warrior, a lot of fighting men for the nation. In fact, uh, we know that Judge Tola uh, was from the tribe of Issachar. Ju- uh, the book of Judges 10 verses 1 and 2 tells us that. Uh, the men of Issachar fought uh, Sisera in Judges 5 verse 15. And David had soldiers from the tribe who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. I love that scripture. That's uh, 1 Chronicles 12 verse 32. It says the men of Issachar were men of understanding who understood the times and knew what Israel needed to do. How desperately we need men and women like these men of Issachar who can look at the things going around, understand what's happening. Men and women of understanding and know what the church needs to do. And it's not entertain people. It's not to placate. It's not to give feel-good messages. It's to stand up like the prophets of old and say, look, thus says the Lord. Until we get our lives right with God and judgment begins in the house of God, the church has to get right with him if he's ever going to use us to reach the world. So this is the day we're living in, a day of great deception and darkness. And the church, for the most part, is clueless. And I don't say that lightly. The church, for the most part, is clueless. They're marrying the culture. Instead of standing up and lovingly confronting the culture. They're not teaching the word, they're downplaying doctrine and so on. I mean, that's a whole other study, but uh, look, the men of Visigar were a tough group. Uh, they were valiant men in battle. And they inherited the land uh, in, uh, they, they inherited land in what's called the valley of Megiddo, also known as the Valley of Jezreel, some of the most fertile land in all of Israel. Now here's the thing because the land was so fertile it meant that the people of Issachar uh, really didn't have to work very hard to produce their crops I mean they just sowed their their fields with seed and pretty much they grew on its own uh, which meant they had a lot of free time a lot of idle time uh, and was the you know the old saying goes idle uh, idleness is the devil's workshop you know because they didn't have to be very industrious uh, a lot of idle time in their on their hands and they were very prosperous because the area they lived and produced a lot of crops which they sold and made a lot of money off of well you know how it goes they eventually became a lazy immoral people and they were some of the first to be carried away captive by the Assyrians when the northern kingdom fell in 722 BC and I believe that's what uh, verse 15 is a reference to and uh, Issachar became a band of slaves It was all because their prosperity led to apathy, apathy led to apostasy, apostasy led to immorality, idolatry, and that led to captivity, basically. It's a vicious cycle that we see in the book of Judges, uh, repeating over and over again. Anyways, next we come to Dan, verse 16. Jacob says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Of course, the name Dan means to judge. And his tribe produced one of the most famous judges in Israel's history, who? Samson. Samson. You can read about that in Judges chapter 13 to 16. Uh, But the tribe of Dan, if you study now the Old Testament, when the land was portioned out by Joshua after they conquered the land, Dan got a nice piece of land right on the Mediterranean coast. But it was in Philistine country. Now, the directive was, Joshua said, look, I'm getting to be an old man here. I can't keep fighting the battles of the Lord. Uh, we're going to divide up the land, and each of you will have to go in and drive out the enemy from each of your inheritance. Well, Dan couldn't do it. They couldn't drive out the Philistines, which says to me, they were not uh, a people that was very close to God. They were not a people that walked in a lot of faith, because if they had, God would have given them the grace to drive the Philistines out. But because they couldn't drive out the Philistines, what land they did inherit, they were uh, forced to live in a very small part of it. So they complained about it. And I think it was Joshua who said, look, uh, if that's not enough land for you, then go find land somewhere else. So what they did was they went up to the very northern part of the land and they defeated the uh, people of uh, Laish tossed them out of their land. So now Dan, if you notice in one of your Bible maps where it has the tribes listed, you'll see Dan on the seacoast, Dan up north uh, because of this very incident. Now here's the problem with that. When the kingdom bifurcated under, uh, under Rehoboam, okay, when it split, uh, Rehoboam was Solomon's son. He wasn't so bright and uh, tried to play hardball with the people of Israel. And so uh, the 10 tribes abandoned him and uh, chose Jeroboam to be their leader. Now, Jeroboam, because he realized that the place of worship was in Jerusalem still, and he feared if the people had, from the northern kingdom had to keep going down to the southern kingdom of Judah to worship God, their hearts would start getting knit to, down to the southern kingdom again. So to counteract this or to combat this, he puts a golden calf up in the the north Dan area, and leads the whole nation into idolatry. See, idolatry entered the, the land through the tribe of Dan. Verse 17 says, Dan shall be a serpent by the way. Now, again, Jacob is prophesying. He goes on to say, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider its rider shall fall backwards. What does that mean? Well, again, I believe it's a reference to the fact that um, the northern tribe... Uh, eventually opened themselves up to Satan the serpent and through idolatry which Satan introduced into uh Israel through the northern king, the northern tribe of Dan uh it would cause the rest of Israel to backslide from God or in other words fall backward and um that's what happened again jeroboam places a stupid golden calf up there and everyone <laughs> leads the whole nation into idolatry um and um because of it many suggest that uh, they even suggest the Antichrist is going to come from the tribe of Dan, because they realize that God was so upset with the northern tribe of Dan that uh, He seems to overlook them when He talks about uh, the uh, the other tribes. We, we see this in 1 uh, Chronicles chapter 2 through chapter 10 when God is listing all the tribes of Israel. Dan is left out. In Revelation 7, when God lists how that. Uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes will be, uh, will be uh, sealed with the mark of God in their forehead, and thus uh, the Antichrist won't be able to harm them. Uh, the tribe of Dan is left out. And some believe, oh, wow, did God forsake them once and for all because of what they did? Well, you know our God, how gracious and merciful he is. When you turn to the book of Ezekiel, And uh, you read chapter 48, verses 1 and 2. It says very clearly that God has reserved a place for the tribe of Dan uh, in the millennial kingdom. So, you know, his anger is for, uh, you know, a moment, but his mercy endures forever. So, God is so good. I'm, I'm so happy when he's merciful to people. I'm not the kind of person that says, oh, Lord, you should have got him. No, because you know what? I want mercy. Mercy will be shown to those who show mercy so i'm really thankful when god is really merciful with the sins of others because i know that if he's merciful to them there's no reason why he wouldn't be merciful to me okay not that i'm trying to get away with so much but you, you understand all right and then jacob just says in verse 18 i have waited for your salvation O lord and guys this seems to be an exclamation of jacob for himself and not part of the prophecy relating to dan The word translated salvation is Yeshua. Yeshua. The word literally means Jehovah is salvation. Of course, the Hebrew name Joshua comes from the word Yeshua. Of course, the Greek form is Jesus. And I believe that just as Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy in chapter 22, uh, knowing that he knew the gospel. Uh, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, I think, that God preached the gospel to Abraham in his day. We've talked about how he might have done that. So Abraham knew the gospel. I'm sure Isaac, his son, knew the gospel. And Isaac passed it along to Jacob. And I believe Jacob is basically saying here, Lord, I've been waiting for your Redeemer. I've been waiting for salvation. You're Yeshua. I don't think he knew him as Jesus, of course, but he knew he was going to be a deliverer who would redeem his people, and so on. So um, just an awesome thing. Now, the next three prophecies in verses 19 to 21 are very short and uh, deal with the tribes of Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. First of all, Gad, verse 19. Jacob said, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Now, the Hebrew text is a play on words at this point. The word Gad comes from the same Hebrew root, Uh, that the phrase band of raiders gad means a troop but in the sense of a of a band of raiders okay Uh, same hebrew root that could be translated band of raiders or attackers and the idea is that this tribe would know constant attacks warfare from their enemies you say well why what was going on here well if you remember when the children of israel finished their wilderness wandering and now God was leading them into the promised land under Joshua. They had to cross over the Jordan because the promised land was on the west side of the Jordan River. But you remember how that Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh came to Moses and said, Look, we like it on the east side of the Jordan River. There's a lot of good grazing land here. We got a lot of flocks and herds. We want to stay on this side of the river. And Moses was like, Wow. I mean, you know, he first of all, he went ballistic because he thought they were saying... They weren't going to go into the promised land and fight as God had commanded. And so he said, this is what your forefathers did 40 years ago. They wouldn't go into the land and fight. Now you're doing the same thing. You're going to what? You're going to drive us back out into the wilderness another 40 years? And they said, no, 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 Mo. you got us wrong. We will cross over and fight with our brothers until the land is taken. But then we want to cross back over and settle on this side of the Jordan River. And so Moses, I'm sure he wasn't happy, but said, well, find if you will agree to cross over and fight with your brothers, that you can come back and live on this side of the Jordan. The problem was, even though that land was incredibly rich, pasture land, they were not in God's perfect will. The promised land, that was God's perfect will. They were close to it. How many times do we get close to God's perfect will and think, I'm kind of there. I'm almost there. I can see it. I can put my foot over, you know, but I'm not quite there yet. And you can fill in the blanks what that exactly means. There's a lot of people who are compromising, a lot of Christians. They are not really doing all that God has said. They're doing most of it maybe, but there is compromise going on. Kind of like Saul when he compromised on what God told him to do. He didn't kill all the Amalekites and save the best animals to sacrifice, as as we've been studying in 1 Samuel 15 the last few weeks. Uh, It's kind of that way. They were not in God's perfect will. God's perfect will was the promised land. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of the main reasons was the Jordan River was a natural barrier to protect them against their enemies. By living on the east side of the Jordan, they were wide open to enemy attacks. And this is what happened over and over again. Sure, from a a visual standpoint, walking by sight, this looked like a great place to live. From a spiritual standpoint, walking by faith, they were outside of God's perfect will and therefore outside of God's perfect protection. And that's what happens. Well, we think we know better than God and we say, well, Lord, I know what you've said. I, I want to live most of what you said, but I do have some things that I want to do on my own. God says, well, then you limit what I can do in your life. You limit how I want to use you, bless you, keep you, protect you, etc." Now, I'll do as best as you'll let me do. You say, well, it sounds like God you know, can't do what he wants to do but has depended on our will. No, God is basically saying to us that, look, I will use you, I will bless you as much as you want to be used and blessed. If you want to walk in the Spirit, that's our promised land right there. Walking in the Spirit is our spiritual promised land where we are the recipients of all God's blessings, all his promises. If we walk in the flesh even if most of what we do is you know what god wants it limits how he can work in our lives so much better to fully obey god in everything but they chose to live outside of the promised land but god loved them and god did make them a strong people as the prophecy states in the end they would be victorious these were not these these were strong guys okay in fact, in First Chronicles 12, verse 8, we read, Some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty men of valor, men trained for battle, who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions, and were as swift as gazelles on the mountains. These were tough guys, and God, you know, He uh, said, well, if you're going to live out there, wide do in the open, I'll, at least I'll give you the, ability to defend yourselves okay and eventually they would go on to be victorious but verse 20 then speaks of jacob's prophecy over asher he said bread from asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties asher means happy or fortunate and indeed he was because when it came to material blessings, listen to me, the tribe of Asher was the most prosperous of any tribe in Israel. And it had to do with where they were located. Again, they were located right on the coast, northwest uh, you know, area of uh, Israel, uh, a very, very wealthy area for shipping. Okay, But also because that, they were on the west side of the mountain range, so much rain fell on their land, Their fields produced abundantly, kind of like with, uh, you know, those um, in the valley of Megiddo. Okay, so they were incredibly prosperous. And the problem with all this abundance was, though, in material blessings, it robbed them of their passion for God and for fighting the battles of the Lord. We read in Judges chapter five, verse 17, that while Zebulun and Naphtali were laying their lives on the line, fighting Israel's enemies, The people of Asher stayed home enjoying their luxuries. Guys, material prosperity can be a curse instead of a blessing if we allow it to entangle us. If we become entangled by it, and we allow it to pull us away from God, it's no longer a blessing, it's a curse. And that's why I just shake my head when I hear Christians equate riches with always God's will and God's blessing. Um, You know, there are those beloved christians who believe that it's god's will that we all be prosperous that's god's blessing that's our birthright to be prosperous. we're king's kids and just like you want your kids to have the best our father the king of glory wants his kids to have the best drive the best cars live in the best houses and so on and so forth let me say something to you god loves us and sometimes the way to really bless us is not to give us an abundance of material things is to give us a lack of material things that keeps us on our knees, trusting him to provide our daily bread. Yeah, the world, they don't see it that way. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians are looking at things like the world. In the world's eyes, the more money you have, the more blessed you are. In the eyes of God, whatever is going to prepare you for the work he's calling you to do, that's the real blessing. And he, if it means taking things away from us, if it will grow us the best, he'll do that. Now, some Christians can be wealthy and are wealthy. It doesn't go to their head. They use it for God's glory. Money is not evil. It's the love of money. That's the root of all kinds of evil. But there's another interesting prophecy about the tribe of Asher in Deuteronomy chapter 33. Why don't you just turn to it quickly? I thought this was interesting. Uh, Deuteronomy 33. I believe Moses is prophesying here. Verse 24. And of Asher, he said... Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. That's interesting because the land of Asher looks like a foot. And the tip of the foot is where they have found a lot of oil. Uh, Rich oil deposits, okay? So, you know, let him be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. Now, I was just talking to one of our Calvary pastors today who is uh, organizing the trip to Israel we're taking in a few weeks, God willing, but I believe we're going to get it in. The Lord's going to take care of it. And he was telling me that they have just discovered so much oil in the Golan Heights. That's the area that Israel occupies. It will meet all of their energy needs for the rest of their existence. Could this be... Russia is no fool. The Russians are no fools. Could this be the hook that Ezekiel 38 talks about, that God will put in Russia's jaw and bring Russia, Iran, and a confederacy of Muslim nations into the Middle East to do battle with Israel? What a great motivation for them. Of course, the Muslims want to just kill Israel, wipe it off the map. Russia doesn't care about Israel. He'll lead them in. Take, kill the Jews, we'll just take the oil. So we see things getting, heating up, becoming very, very interesting. All right. Next verse 21, Jacob prophesies over Naphtali. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. A deer let loose could be a reference to his descendants being known for their swiftness in battle as warriors. All right he uses beautiful words. That to me ultimately is a reference to the ministry of Jesus. Because so many of his beautiful words, quote unquote, were spoken in Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and other towns located up north in the area of the Galilee, but primarily in the land of Naphtali. We looked at Matthew 4 verses 15 and 16 already. So ultimately, That area would be known for its beautiful words, the Lord Jesus Christ conducting most of his public ministry up there, Uh, the place where he gave the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Those were some really beautiful words. I think the greatest sermon ever preached. All right, well, now we come to Joseph. Verse 22, and Jacob does spend a lot of time with Joseph um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He starts out, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. Now, he likens Joseph to a fruitful bough planted by a well, which means the roots can sink down into the water source and draw an inexhaustible flow of water, which will keep this thing growing and flourishing. It's not dependent on rainfall. It's kind of like what the psalmist said in Psalm Uh, One Turn to Psalm 1. You all know it. But in Psalm 1, starting in verse 1, David said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Here it is. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season. Whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And of course, you get the idea. A tree that's planted by a river, well, the roots can draw moisture from the ground from that river. It's an inexhaustible source of water. Water's life, okay? Especially if you live in an arid country like Israel, water equals life. And uh, here, Joseph was going to draw from an inexhaustible source of living water. Of course, it talks about his faith in God. And that's why he was able to flourish even when most people would have shriveled up and died in prison. Why was Joseph able to flourish? Because he was connected to God and primarily to the promise of God that God gave to him in a couple of dreams. That someday, someday, not only would his family bow down to him, but I get the impression he had in mind also, God communicated the whole known world. Now, that was a um, prophecy God gave to Joseph when Joseph was just a teenager. Of course, at the age of 17, his brothers sold him into slavery. He winds up uh, living at the house of Potiphar for three or four years or so. Then his wife, Potiphar's wife, accuses him of trying to rape her, which was a lie. So he winds up in prison for another seven, eight years. I mean, you know, by the time he is released from prison, 13 years has passed. And I'm wondering, I'm thinking if, if I was Joseph, would I start to wonder, Lord, did I really hear from you? Were those dreams really prophetic? Were they really of you? Was I just dreaming? Or were you give, did you really give me those dreams? And I believe because Joseph was a man of faith, and I believe that, God assured him that those were prophetic dreams, a promise from God that someday God was going to do exactly what he promised Joseph. That promise sustained him. It allowed him to draw life from God, his promises. Guys, as things get tougher and tougher for us as a nation, who knows what the future is going to hold for America? You know what's going to sustain us? Not the government. Not scientists who you know they're always trying to tell us that look to us and we'll figure out all the world's problems or politicians all the political problems what is going to sustain God's people is God's promises that he is with us he'll never leave us or forsake us he will take care of us and even if we are martyred we will go into glory and have an an inheritance waiting for us that we can't even imagine right now that this life is but for a moment We're, we're here today gone tomorrow We shouldn't be putting all our emphasis on this life. We should be looking to the life to come, you know, keeping our eyes uh, above above, and so on. But verse 23, he goes on, the archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. And, of course, this speaks of Joseph's rough past, um, how his brothers hated him, tried to get rid of him. But again, God was with him, strengthening and sustaining him all those years. Verse 24, Jacob makes a reference to this, but his bow bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So the one who had strengthened Joseph, strengthened his hands, you might say, uh, and would go on to strengthen his whole tribe down the road in the future was both shepherd and stone of israel those are the first times in the bible the word shepherd is used with directly relating to god and stone stone is used as a uh, metaphor for god look we know that both of those point to jesus he is our shepherd and he is our stone remember the ebenezer stone okay that samuel set up ebenezer means stone of help Jesus Christ is our Ebenezer stone. He is our stone of help. He's our rock. We build our lives on him. We'll never be moved, right? Um, It's a reference to, of course, Jesus, ultimately. Verse 25. By the God of your Father, who will help you, uh, and by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, in other words, a promise of rain upon Joseph's crops, Blessings of the deep that lies beneath, again, streams and wells for water. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb, God promising Joseph that he would have, his descendants would have abundant offspring. Of course, Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, wound up being adopted by Jacob, and they went ahead to inherit land in the promised land. And uh, they were important tribes, as we've already said. Uh, in fact the northern kingdom was frequently called ephraim and uh, that's out of isaiah 7 verses 1 and 2 hosea 13 verse 1 just do you know that ephraim became uh, so dominant even though manasseh was technically the firstborn, ephraim was the one that god had said would excel would be the favored one remember when jacob went to bless the two uh, grandkids who were in their early 20s by this time and uh, Joseph had positioned them just the right way so that when they came up in front of their grandfather, whose eyes were, eyesight was practically gone, all he had to do was put his right hand out and put it on, uh, on uh, Manasseh's head and his left hand on Ephraim's head because the oldest always was blessed with the right hand. that was the greatest blessing of honor and so on. What does Jacob do? He reverses, he crosses his hands, puts his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. Well, Joseph freaks out. Dad, Dad, don't do that. This is the he's the younger one. Put your left hand on him and "Jacob goes, son, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Don't worry about it, okay? This is what God has ordained, all right? So Ephraim went on to be now. Ephraim had its problems. Don't you know? Don't misunderstand. They eventually became corrupted and judged, but um, believe it or not, they were better than Manasseh, who was really bad. So, all right, verse twenty-six. He goes on, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. And Jacob is just basically talking about how God has blessed Joseph and will continue to bless them as a tribe, uh, that God blessed Joseph abundantly because God was his shepherd. He was his Ebenezer stone, his stone of help, who had helped him all these years. And God had separated Joseph from his brothers, verse 26. Why? To prepare him, to use him, ultimately, of course, to bless him. Well, all right, that brings us to the final son, Benjamin, verse 27. And I got to tell you, as much as Jacob loved Benjamin, he doesn't have much to say about him. And what he does say is a little puzzling, okay? He says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Now, I believe part of this is because Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, went on to be the toughest warriors, the fiercest fighters in all of Israel. You would think that Jacob would have more to say about Benjamin, who he called Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand. Instead, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his words are few and puzzling. Why compare Benjamin to a ravenous wolf? Well, first of all, they were a, a very, very strong. They weren't a very big tribe, but boy, were they tough. They were really tough. And they helped defeat uh, Sisera in Judges 5. Um, but as you read the, the history of Benjamin in the book of Judges, especially when you come to chapters 19 and 20, you see this ravenous wolf metaphor come alive basically in fact because of what they did and i won't i'll let you read it on your own uh, but some of their one guy in particular of the tribe of benjamin did something so heinous so corrupt so vile and benjamin wouldn't hand this guy over they protected him so the other uh, tribes strapped on their swords and went to fight all against benjamin Well, Benjamin kicked their butts a few times. I mean, really this was a very tough tribe. We know that Israel's first king came from the tribe of Benjamin. That was Saul. We also know that the church's greatest warrior came from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul of Tarsus, who later on became Paul the Apostle. So, tough group. Um, I'll say this and we'll close. When the nation divided after Solomon's death, we talked about this, the the north northern kingdom was made up of the 10 tribes the southern kingdom judah was made up of judah and benjamin benjamin remained loyal to david benjamin remained loyal to the davidic line and so they came and they joined with the southern with judah and became the southern kingdom so they were tough guys but they were loyal if you know they wanted to support somebody or Like somebody like David, they they were all in. And we'll end with verse 28 tonight, and then we'll finish the book next week. Jacob said, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is, well, actually, this is now uh, Moses uh, who wrote Genesis. But he says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing or in other words according to what the spirit of god laid on his heart for each son and then next time we will see how that after jacob pronounces these prophecies upon his sons we see him then uh, lay back down on his on his bed and eventually then uh, not long after he dies and um, we don't want to rush through chapter 50 we will finish it next week but uh, there's a tremendous lesson there that the whole book of genesis or at least the last Four, 13 or 14 chapters points to the whole principle of the last you know, 13 or so chapters which deal with Joseph. One statement that you've all heard before but we'll study it next time. Father we thank you for your word. We thank you Lord that uh, even though um, many of these things of course we can't apply into our lives directly. It does teach us Lord that if we are faithful to you and we submit to you that, Lord, you will bless us if we will not offer you partial obedience, but, Lord, we will walk in the Spirit completely, live in that spiritual promised land that you desire us to live in. You will bless us abundantly, take care of us, provide for us, protect us, and use us, Lord. Father, give us grace to stop trying to control any part of our life, but to surrender all to you that we might live, Lord, in our promised land and uh, that you might, uh, Lord, uh, bless us abundantly and use us for your glory. Father, we thank you. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.